yeah, now we know it's functional. Hit us with it. <clears throat> wow, I was listening to Britney actually the other night, and I was like, God damn, these songs are still bangers. Dude, they are. And I mean, I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but my impression. Oh, yeah, you've got it. Golden. That's pretty golden. You, you hit '90s diva, a variety of '90s divas like no one I know. Thank you. I that is a true compliment. So <laughs> I I appreciate I, that. I very much appreciate it. Um, hi everybody, welcome back to Oddities. What's the most- up, gang? We put the fun and dysfunctional. <laughs> That's exactly fucking right. And welcome back to Strange Town. Uh, I'm Cassie. I'm Anna. And uh, you know the drill. All of our shits in the description. You Donate to our that. show, please. We still want to do this full time. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> and then you get bonus episodes every week. Burnish content. We, st- we still don't have sponsorships, so odd fan fandom. Go message some companies and yell at them for us, would you? <laughs> <laughs> I bully them into oh. sponsoring us. <laughs> I have to tell you because we, last week you were talking about how you were up early with the cats. Yes, dude, I was up until three forty last night because oh God. I I haven't been able to like get into reading recently. I don't know what's going on with me, but I saw the Bridgerton season two trailer. Oh, yeah, it's coming up. And I was like, wasn't that a book? And I got it on my Kindle, read the whole thing in a night. Oh, my God, did you? Should I read it? Because I liked, I liked the seer. I mean, it was, you know, you know, it's, it's it was, Bridgerton, but yeah. it's fun. It, and I'll tell you what, the book was fun. What I'm surprised by, and I guess I shouldn't be because I watched the first series, is I thought they just did, like, base, you know, in the first series, how, like, all of a sudden it's, like, porn for, like, a couple episodes, and you're like, Jesus! Yeah, and you're like, wow, okay, all right, yeah. The the book is like that, too! Just, like, there's just, like, a couple of porn chapters thrown in, and you're like, what yeah, the hell? Yeah, like, you're in a normal plot, and then all of a sudden it's, like, two chapters of smut, and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa! <laughs> and then just back to normal. <laughs> and then it's back to normal, and then you have, like, another couple, like, two pages of it here and there, and you're like, what, 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 what? I love it. Maybe I'll try to read it. That's hilarious to me. Anyway, it's, the new season's coming on the 25th. Oh, this by the time this is out, it's out. Oh, yeah. Which now I have to watch the new season because I read the book. Wait, by the time this is out, we did our live stream. <gasps> That's true. Oh, my God. How did it go, everybody? <laughs> the future world knows. <laughs> wow. Wow. So you were up late. We could have totally, like, pretty much text each other i know i was just thinking that i was like wow our timelines literally overlap for the first time ever at night that's right you were going to sleep i was waking up holy that shit sounds what a right. ride. yeah that does that that fits the bill yeah and but it was uh it was turns out motherfucking book was a page turner <laughs> who the fuck would have thunk it no <clears throat> not fucking me but no it was wild. i can't i that's cool i've um yeah. Made, made the sad mistake again where I didn't save anything to talk about. Oh. So. See, there you go. Well, I mean, because I feel like we were talking about something we've watched recently. Mm, I don't remember. Yeah. We watched mm. uh, Hellraisers. You did? 
Well, I fell asleep during it, so Corey mostly <laughs> watched it. Got it. Did you and watch the season finale of Euphoria, by the way? Yes. I'm... What do you think about it? Well, I'm relieved because Fezco looks like he'll be okay, aside from the whole, like, police thing. Yeah. But, you know, I feel bad about little Ashtray. I liked him. But then I, he was also pissing me off because he was making things kind of worse, left and right, on and off. And I'm like, dude... I gotta tell you, the guy who plays Fez did a fucking hell of a job. He killed it. Yeah, he did. Angus Cloud. He's so, I'm obsessed with him. I mean, I know most of the world is right now, but I'm even in the first season, I was like, I fucking love this guy. I don't know what it is about him. Dude, I know. I don't really know what it is either, but I follow him on Instagram now. He's so cute. He is. He's adorable. He just, there's something like so lovable about him. Just, I think that's what it is. He has a he has wonderful eyes, very beautiful he, like kind yes. eyes. Yeah, uh, and he uh, he makes me want to like sit down on a couch and like talk about life together. Wow. Well, I'll DM him and let him know. Oh my god, be no, like no. one of my best buds and my co-host. They like she just wants to sit down on a couch and talk about life. I with mean, you. I would like Are to you do down? a lot of other things, but <laughs> wait, how old is he? Before I say that, he's like twenty four, I think. Oh my god, he's so young. I know, he's a fucking infant, because by the time this comes out, you'll be 30. Ugh. He's 23. Oh my god, I feel so weird. Uh, he doesn't that's, look 23. That's too young. He does not, no, he he does not look 23. He doesn't look 23. So Although He's got that like adorable boyish charm, so I can see it, but I didn't think he was that young. But also, I thought he was like mid-20s. No, I would put him at like 26 or 27, yeah. Yeah, but uh, I, I mean... Season two was a little bit of a wild ride for me. What happened? Well, my my pants got stuck on my Pandora bracelet. <laughs> Go on without me. Okay, I got it. <laughs> there's a there's a thread hanging. These are my leggings that are coming apart. There's a thread and it got hooked up on my little owl charm. Just wanted it's to fine. hang out. Just hanging. We're hanging out. That's it. Um. Yeah. yeah so I- yeah. I don't know. You know how I feel about the show overall. I'm I'm like, I like it and I don't know why type of deal. Yeah, it was interesting, though, that like the first half of season two, I was very invested. And by the second half, I like almost kind of wasn't. And I don't know what happened there. Yeah, there are some like subplots going on there that I was just like, can we skip to the part I care about? So. And there just seemed to be a lot of like character like characters taking sharp turns in their story yeah. arc that I didn't think was going to happen. And I was like, what's going on here? That I didn't think were happen or that were like particularly necessary. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of people online, like on Reddit and stuff too, be like, well, it's, you know, they're high school kids. And I'm like, yeah, I get that. Yeah. I'm just saying it's like, it just doesn't like if the two seasons were separate, I would almost be like, oh, okay. Like, I feel like they could be separate. That's how different their character development feels from season yeah, to season. Yeah, they could be, like, separate shows. Yeah. Yeah. Almost. For sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It, it was a... Uh, but... It was kind of a weird one. Yeah. But love Fez. Big fan. Oh, yeah. For sure. Only character I really like, actually. I like Lexi. Oh, yeah. Lexi's cool, too. Uh, actually, that was the whole storyline that I gave a shit about. Oh, they were so cute. I swear to God, if they don't get together, I'm going to fucking lose my mind when I'm on Wheel of Fortune. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to use that as my platform to get real vocal about it. (laughs) That's right. 
If you guys listened, God, when this comes out, it's going to be a long time ago. But the week of March 10th, which is what we're in. <laughs> come on. I feel yeah. like I'm losing my mind. Week, which is what we're in right now. I don't know when you're listening to this. But it's we had a boozy free-for-all. And we talked extensively about a boozy bonus. And we talked extensively about your dream to be on Wheel of Fortune. Yeah, I'm, I'm telling you, this summer I'm going to make it happen. I've got a little, a little break from school. I'm making it happen. Vanna and Pat. Panna. Panna. That's right. Panna. Um, so, so, okay. We were discussing this offline. Today you have a heavy topic. I have a light topic. I so do, I'm gonna, yes. I think I'll, I think I'll wrap us up. So do you need to, like, is it so heavy you need a disclaimer? I mean, I'm going to give a disclaimer because this is some pretty gruesome shit. Okay. So you guys, yeah, go ahead. I think uh, we're gonna put a time jump to go to for Cassie's because this is a this is a wild one. Come hang out with me. I've got a weird. I got a real weird one. It's it's not sad. It's just bizarre. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm doing the White House Farm Murders. Mm, I discovered this. This series on HBO Max and had to dig in because you guys know how I get. Oops. There it is. Okay. Wait, so so is it real? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So during the night of the 6th of August, 1985, Neville and June Bamber were shot and killed inside their farmhouse at White House Farm along with their adopted daughter, Sheila Caffel, and Sheila's six-year-old twin sons, Daniel and Nicholas. Jesus. The only surviving member of June and Neville's immediate family was their adopted son, Jeremy, then 24, who said he had been at home a few miles away when the shooting took place. So, Mm. let's unpack this. All right, let's do it. So, Neville and June Bamber married in 1949 and moved into the Georgian White House farm in Essex, which was set among 300 acres of farmland that had belonged to June's father. Hmm. Neville had been described as a well-built man, 6'4", and in very good physical health, and he was a former RAF pilot. So wow. he's he's not a fucking schlub. Yeah, he's, he's not going down easy. Yeah, th- yes. Unable to have biological children, the couple adopted Sheila and Jeremy as babies, and June suffered from depression and had been admitted to a psychiatric hospital in the 1950s, and it was reported that she was given electroshock therapy at least six times. I was just going to say, God only knows what fucking horrors awaited her over in that because this was the 50s. And yeah, at least six times. I can't I'm, even begin. That's so disgusting. It's fucking wild. So they were financially secure and they gave the children a very good home growing up and a private education. June had a super poor relationship with Sheila who felt that June disapproved of her, and June's relationship with Jeremy was so troubled that he had apparently stopped speaking to her. Oh, okay. Yeah. And June was super religious and tried Mm. to instill that into her children and grandchildren. Okay. So let's talk about Sheila. All right. She was born to the 18-year-old daughter of Eric J., a senior champ chaplain, to the Archbishop of Canterbury. At his insistence, she was placed for adoption, and he had known Neville in the RAF and selected the Bambers from the list of prospective adopters. Mm, okay. In 1974, when she was 17, she discovered she was pregnant by Colin Caffel, 
the Bambers arranged an abortion and her relationship with her mother basically deteriorated because of this, mm. at least significantly, with her mother saying things like she was the devil's child. I mean, so part of me wants to be like, maybe like that shock therapy did like a little damage. Right. But also like, what the fuck? But you have to wonder like if that therapy did do some kind of damage and that's why she turned so hard into religion. You know what I'm saying? I kind of feel like, yeah, there could totally be a tie, but like also, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of, there's like a lot of, you know. Yeah. There's, there's a lot going on. Yeah. Sheila was in a secretarial course and then she trained as a hairdresser and briefly worked as a model with an agency that took her two months in Tokyo to work. So she was cool. She She was was multi-talented. She was doing her thing. That's cool. After she became pregnant again, she married Colin Caffel in May 1977, but suffered... Oh, oh. In 1977, before giving birth to her sons, Nicholas and Daniel, on the 22nd of June, 1979. Okay. Almost my birthday. So close. But, like, earlier. But, yes. Just before this... Colin began an affair and left Sheila five months after the birth. Wow, what a sh- fucking schmuck. I can't with people. I really Dude, can't. the people in Sheila's life, I... Okay. So, yeah. on one occasion when Colin left her 21st birthday party with another woman, she required hospital treatment after breaking a window with her fist. Which... Okay. That's kind of a mood. <laughs> Yeah, I I mean, I I get it. I get it. I get it, but Jesus. So the couple divorced in May 1982, and she became friends with a group of women who later told reporters that she was desperately insecure, often complaining about her poor relationship with her adoptive mother. And she attempted to reach out to her birth mother, but her, they basically didn't have a relationship. So she's, she's like grasping at straws here. All right. And she jumped around from one low-paying job to another. And meanwhile, her mental health continued to decline with episodes of things like banging her head against walls. In 1983, her family referred to her to the same doctor that June went to. Don't love that. Oh, good. Okay, great. Because it worked so well the first time around. Yeah. And he diagnosed Sheila with schizophrenia and began treating her with a drug I can't pronounce, which is an antipsychotic drug. And... After she was starting to be on this drug, her behavior kind of changed. Like, she started calling her own children the devil's children, a la June. Ah, okay. So, God, Jesus. Hmm, okay. And even though she talked about suicide, the doctor didn't regard her as a suicide risk. Why? Okay. But, okay. She was admitted to- What the hell with this doctor, honestly? Dude, I know. She was admitted to St. Andrews in March 1985, five months before the murders, after a psychotic episode in which she believed herself to be in direct communication with God and that certain people, including her boyfriend, were trying to hurt or kill her. She was discharged four weeks later and, as an outpatient, received a monthly injection of another antipsychotic drug that has a sedative effect. Jesus. From that point on, the twins lived mostly with their father, Colin. This whole, this is all such a mess. I know. So Sheila's doctor believed that despite her mental state, she wasn't capable of violence. And her ex-husband even said the same, that despite her tendency to throw things and like have these like fits where she hurt herself, she had never tried to harm the children or anybody else. 
Right, well, at least he, like, chimed in and was useful. Yeah, June's sister testified that Sheila was not a violent person and that she had never known her to use a gun. Jeremy, who's her brother, disputed Mm. this, telling police on the night of the shooting as they stood outside the house that he and Sheila had gone target shooting together, but he acknowledged later that he had not seen her fire a gun as an adult. So now that we've brought up Jeremy, let's talk about his ass. All right, let's talk about him. So he was born on the 13th of January, my cousin Jade's birthday. Hey. Oh, 1961, to a student midwife who had an affair with an army sergeant and gave her baby to the church when he was six weeks old. Wow, that was, that was uh, old yeah. twist. All right, okay. And his biological it? parents later got married and then had other children. His father became a senior staff member in Buckingham Palace. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. And Neville's former secretary, so Neville's the father, because I, even in my notes, I was like, who's this? It, Neville's former secretary, Barbara Wilson, had told reporters that Jeremy provoked his parents when he was a child, riding in circles around his mother on his bicycle. He would wear makeup to upset his father, and that arguments almost always occurred when he visited the farm. Okay. And as an- This whole dynamic is really something. Very wild. Yeah. And right before the shooting, apparently tensions had really spiked. Wilson, um, Neville's secretary, said that Neville had remarked to her about foreseeing a shooting accident. Isn't that wild okay. that he said that That's to her? That's strange. Yeah. And Jeremy's girlfriend, who she's going to come back later, had alleged that he had been talking about killing his family, which, okay, seems okay, like a then. red flag. Just like maybe, just maybe. Yeah. Yeah. A farm worker testified that Jeremy had once said of Sheila, quote, I'm not going to share my money with my sister, unquote. So here we go. <sighs> okay. Well, that, March, I mean, money, it's always money. Yeah. In March that year, Jeremy had told his uncle, quote, I could kill anybody. I could even kill my parents, unquote. Of course, Jeremy denies saying all of this. Of course. Of course. Yeah. So let's follow the money. Let's. The Bambers, the Bambers company... N&J Bamber Limited was worth 400,000 pounds in 1985, which is almost 1.4 mil in dollars Ooh. now. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. During the murder trial, the court heard that the Bambers had left their estate to Jeremy and Sheila to be divided equally, but apparently he's not sharing his money, so there's that. Right, right. And in addition, Neville's will had said that in order to inherit, Jeremy had to be working on the farm at the time of his father's death. And it was said that June wanted to bypass Jeremy and Sheila altogether and leave her <laughs> estate to the twins. Okay. So we got a lot going on. Holy shit. So let's talk about what happened. On Sunday, the 4th of August, 1985, three days before the murders, Sheila and, the, and her sons arrived at White House Farm to spend the week with June and Neville. Two farm workers, as well as the housekeeper, saw Sheila with her sons and said that she looked happy and that nothing unusual was going on at the house at all. Okay. One of the crime scene photographs showed that someone had carved, I hate this place, into the cupboard doors of the bedroom in which the twins were sleeping. Oh, good. Yeah. And apparently the, the twins and their father were super uncomfortable with, like, how often June wanted them to pray and all this kind of stuff. So it didn't seem okay. like a super fun place. <laughs> No. So Jeremy visited the farm on the evening of Tuesday, the 6th of August. A farm worker heard Jeremy leave at 9.30 p.m. via car. Barbara Wilson, the farm secretary, called Neville at around that time 
and was left the impression that she had interrupted an argument, which she said was oh. pretty frequent when Jeremy was at the farm. She said that Neville was, like, very curt with her and pretty mean, which wasn't at all like him. And when June's sister called at 10, she spoke to Sheila and then to June, who both seemed, like, weird, but for the most part, fine. Okay. Neville reportedly kept several guns on the premises. He's got, like, 300 acres, so, yeah. So, yeah. But he was super careful with them with cleaning and securing them. He had bought a semi-automatic rifle on the 30th of November, along with a Parker Hale silencer, telescopic sight, and 500 rounds of ammunition. I don't know why you would need a silencer, but okay. Yeah, that part's weird. Uh, the rest, nothing about that is surprising to me. But no. Yeah. But the silencer is weird. The silencer is weird, Yeah. So 25 shots were fired during the killing. So if the rifle was fully loaded to begin with, it would have had to have been reloaded at least twice. And reportedly, it became increasingly difficult to reload. Okay. So during his visit, Jeremy claimed he loaded the rifle, thinking he heard rabbits outside, as that was its main use, but he didn't use it. But he left the rifle on the kitchen table with a full magazine and a box of ammunition before leaving the house. Why? How does one? How does one hear rabbits outside? We live. <laughs> how, a great question. Kind of, I mean, really. I mean, like where I live with Corey is like ex- very rural. There's a lot of wildlife around here. I don't hear jack shit. I hear like leaves in the woods, but I can't be like, "That's a bunny." That there's a yeah. rabbit. Like what the right. hell? So, Jeremy calls the cops, not the emergency number. And said that he'd gotten a call from his father from the White House Farm landline to the landline at his home to say that Sheila had, quote, gone berserk with a gun. When the police arrived at the scene, the White House Farm landline was left off the hook. The prosecution argued that he received no such call and simply unhooked the landline after calling his home to establish an alibi. Explaining why he had called the local police station and not the emergency number, Jeremy told police on that night that he had not thought it would make a difference to how soon they would arrive. I mean... So that sounds like you know they're dead. Yeah, yeah. I I laugh because sometimes it takes a very long time for cops to arrive when it should be so much faster, but... Come on, dude. Tell me this guy's been... Like, he was apprehended for all of this, and, like, tell me... I'm getting there. Um, Oh, my God. All right. So he said he had spent time looking up the number, and even though his father had asked him to come quickly, he first called his girlfriend in London and then drove to the farmhouse. He acknowledged that he could have called one of the farm workers, but hadn't considered it. (sighs) Tight. Okay. Okay. So it sounds like you were really worried. If this is what was really happening, if his father called him and was like, dude, Sheila went berserk with a gun, and you're not instantly calling multiple police and then getting in your car and going to the farm like what yeah yeah if you don't live whole, that far away this whole thing is so like if if he didn't end up getting put away for this i swear to god so in his early witness statements jeremy said he had called the police immediately after receiving his father's call then called his girlfriend during later police interviews he said he had called his girlfriend first he was confused about the sequence of events so we're doing well as a criminal master yeah we're doing the th- we're, yes we're doing the thing where we just we don't know what order things happened in. got it got it got it got it although i i have to say if i was ever questioned by police about where i was or what happened i would be at a complete loss yeah, I could give rough estimates. 
I, I mean, I could give rough estimates, but like you just forget things and I forget everything. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not going to disagree. <laughs> the toilet flushes, man. It just goes. See ya. <laughs> so apparently after he called the police, he drove with them from his house and the police later testified that he drove much slower than them. And he had reportedly been a super fast driver and because they thought Sheila was still inside, when they got there, they spent two hours using a megaphone trying to talk to her. Okay. Because they thought she was still in there. Because like they alive. thought she was still, yeah, right. Yeah. So they questioned Jeremy outside the house. They said that he seemed calm. They finally entered the farmhouse at 7.54 a.m. using a sledgehammer to break the back door, which had been locked from the inside with the key still in the lock. They found five bodies with multiple gunshot wounds, Neville downstairs in the kitchen, and the rest upstairs. The police concluded, based on the empty cartridge cases, that Neville had been shot upstairs but had made his way downstairs, and a struggle had ensued, and he'd been shot fatally in the kitchen. Because he's a big okay. fucking guy. Yeah, right. The boys were shot multiple times in Sheila's old bedroom in their beds, and Sheila and her mother were found in the master bedroom. Sheila's injuries... Well, this is a bit like Amityville-ish. Right? It is, yeah. Yeah. It's got that vibe to it. Yeah. Sheila's injuries seemed to be attempting to look like suicide, but upon analysis, her body showed no signs of a struggle. Her hands were free of blood, dirt, or powder, and her fingernails were manicured and unbroken. Which they so thought post, was weird. Did they do it? He did it after, whoever? Yeah. Did it after to make it look? Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, no. Like, when they... When the coroner found her, like when they, the forensics went over her, like she was, she didn't have any like gun residue. Her hands were, yeah, I mean, what I mean is like, yeah, they, they made it, they tried to make it look like it was a suicide, but yeah. Yeah. The blood on her nightdress was considered consistent with her own and no trace of firearm discharge residue was on it. So Mm -hmm. zero evidence that she'd been firing a gun or reloading. Very much not Sheila. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if it was difficult to reload and her fingernails are manicured and unbroken. Yeah, right. Like, I do two things around the house. I'm like, fuck. Like, it's it's ruined. Yeah. It's ruined. It's ruined. And since she was only in a nightdress, they were also like, it would have been super hard for her to carry all the cartridges to reload it. Yeah. Yeah. So here comes the investigation. So initially, of course, they're convinced of the murder-suicide theory. And the press and the media are saying things like deranged divorcee and all this gross shit. Of course. And of, and of course, the murder scene wasn't secured and searched properly. And a judge mm-hmm. was concerned about a, quote, less than thorough investigation. Hmm. The police gave evidence on a murder-suicide, and so the bodies are released. The parents are cremated along with Sheila, and the boys are buried. Okay. Apparently, our guy Jeremy is, like, buckling and sobbing openly at the funeral and then is making jokes and laughing at the wake. Now, I will say this. I understand that everybody handles grief differently and grief presents in very weird ways. But your entire family has been killed, including your two child nephews. Yeah, there's such a such a dichotomy between the two events. Right. Like, it's, you know, there's there's, yeah, I don't know. He starts immediately selling family belongings and then goes on a trip to Amsterdam. On the 7th of September, Jeremy's girlfriend changes her statement to police. She tells police that he's been planning to kill his family and the next day he's arrested. 
She changed her statement because they'd been fighting, and she claimed that he was a psychopath, and that one time she tried to smother him with a pillow. I wouldn't put those two sentences back to back. I would maybe have left that part out, but all right. Yep. Yeah. Apparently, he talked excessively about all different plans to get rid of his family, including giving his parents sleeping pills and killing them and setting fire to the house. But he basically always ended it with blaming Sheila. Jeremy's girlfriend told police that he called her at 9.50 p.m. on the 6th of August to say that he had been thinking about the crime all day and was pissed off and that it was tonight or never. When she asked if he did it, he said that he'd had a friend of his do it and that he'd struggled with the friend of his had struggled with Neville in the kitchen and then had Sheila shoot herself at a certain angle. So it looked like suicide and he paid the man mm. 2000 pounds. So this friend and Jeremy okay. are arrested because he named his friend in full to his girlfriend. Yeah. Right. Okay. But the friend has a solid alibi because he didn't do it and is released. Mm hmm. It's later learned that Jeremy used a bicycle to go between his house and the White House farm so his car was not seen on the road. Which is why, like, somebody heard him leave with a car and then didn't hear him come back with a car. So they were like, oh, I don't know. It must have been Sheila. Yeah. He's charged with the murders. The The trial lasts 18 days. And on the 28th of October, after deliberating more than nine hours... The jury found him guilty by a majority of 10 to 2, which is the minimum required for conviction. Okay. He's sentenced to five life terms. And the judge said, quote, your conduct in planning and carrying out the killing of five members of your family was evil almost beyond belief, unquote. I like this judge. Yeah. And in December of 1994, Home Secretary Michael Howard told Jeremy that he would remain in prison for the rest of his life. Of course, he's appealed this, but it seems like to no avail, and he's still in there. Good. As he should be. And that's the story of the White House farm murders. I mean, to me, there's no question about it. Like He did it. He did it. Yeah. So. I, it just doesn't. And also, like, I, I didn't write this in my notes, but when I was reading it, the, the angle where, like, Sheila was shot, the coroner was like, if she had done this, like, she would have angled it differently if it was her doing it. Like, the angle was mm-hmm. at a certain way that it was like, it seems like somebody did this trying to make it look like suicide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, it, it's, it's very that's, fucked up. That's heavy. But at, yeah. least they, at least they got him. Yeah. You know? And, and he's and he, not going anywhere, you know? Yeah, and so. apparently he's tried to appeal it, and everyone's like, no, no, you're no. staying in there. The answer's no. <laughs> We're so sorry. You don't get to play again. Yeah. <laughs> Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. I like that. That's good. Yeah. Um, okay. Mine is in a totally different realm here. So, and this is from one of our listeners. This is about Rudolph Fence, the time traveling man. So I saw this in our Google shits and I was like, what the fuck? Yes, so so a man who mysteriously disappeared 74 years earlier reportedly turns up in New York City in 1950, but he hadn't aged at all. And this is the whole... Oh, my God. This is He's the whole Captain claim America. behind it. So, oh, yeah. So 1950, here we are. A New York City police officer who's working like a missing persons case examines... <laughs> working a missing persons case. <laughs> not missing persons cases. 
examines the body of an approximately 30-year-old man that was brought into the morgue. He had shown up in the middle of Times Square at 11.15 p.m. that evening, quote, gawking and looking around at the cars and up at the signs like he'd never seen them before, and then was quickly hit and killed by a cab as he tried to oh cross the street. He tried to cross the street, like, I guess, against the, the, tra- the um, like, the stoplights. So, like, the, <laughs> just... New York doesn't up stop. The stream. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. So, uh, the pockets of this deceased man's clothing held multiple pieces of coinage and currency of forms that had not been produced for several decades, yet many of them were in very good condition, um, like mint condition. And his possessions also included items um, from, like, many types of businesses that no longer existed in New York, like a bill from a livery stable and, like, a brass slug from a saloon. Ignore Donut. I don't know if she's getting picked up or not. Um, He also had a letter postmarked in 1876 and cards bearing the name Rudolph Fence with an address on Fifth Avenue. So they do like further investigations, right? And it turns up no listings for a Rudolph Fence in New York City phone directories. Um, The Fifth Avenue address listed on the dead man's cards had been a business rather than like a residence for many years. And no one there had heard of a Rudolph fence at all. Um, His fingerprints matched no fingerprints that existed on file. And there were no current missing persons reports or inquiries that fit like the details that would go with this body that they had in the morgue. Um, Moreover, his clothes appeared to be about 75 years out of date and style. And his apparel bore tags with the name and address of a tailor whom no one had ever heard of. And um, his hat, had a tag from a store that had gone out of business many, many years earlier. So, Holy shit. This investigating officer turns up a listing in an old phone directory for a Rudolph Fence Jr., who was a man in his 60s who had passed away about five years earlier. His widow had moved to Florida, but by mail she supplied some information that her husband's father, Rudolph Fence Sr., had disappeared sometime in the 1870s, having gone out for a walk around 10 p.m. one evening and never returned. And so they, I know. So they do a search of the missing person's file for like 1876 and they turn up a report for Rudolph Fence, uh, whose clothing and address corresponded to those of the man who was just killed in Times Square in 1950. Can you Um, imagine being this widow and getting this phone call? I'd be like, what the (laughs) fuck did you say? Be like, by the way, do I have information for you? She's like, I mean, his father went missing, but what the hell are we talking about here? So, <coughs> oh, excuse me, this report from NYPD Captain Hubert V. Rim about the unexplained disappearance and inexplicable reappearance 74 years later <clears throat> of what appeared to be Rudolph Fence has been, are you ready, reproduced in various forms since the 1970s as one of the many tales that seemingly confirms the existence of time travel. So they're chalking all this up to time travel. Yet... Are you equally ready for this? It is not a true account at all, but rather it is an excerpt from a short story titled I'm Scared. Same. I fu- which was Mood. which was penned by science fiction writer Jack Finney, best known uh, for his work, the novel The Body Snatchers, and was published in Collier's Magazine in 1951. So all of this that has circulated across the internet and in various forms since the 70s is actually huh. just an excerpt from a novel. So, in that story, 
The narrator is puzzled because he catches a broadcast of a radio program that had gone off the year, off the year, off the air several years earlier. Then he tracks a series of unusual events that are indicative of what they're calling temporal disturbances. So a man receives a telephone call from his sister that she insisted she hadn't made uh, until three days later. A bank discovers that a check had been deposited the day before it was written. A letter mailed from Wyoming was delivered to a New York City address just 17 minutes later. And a man was shot and killed by a gun that police had found and impounded the previous day. So the whole narrative involving Captain Rim and the reappearance of this Rudolph fence was the longest and most detailed vignette offered in this I'm Scared uh, as evidence of the narrator's discovery of rifts in time that were occurring all over New York City. Um, Mm. And so the cause of those temporal disturbances and the message of I'm Scared, arguably, was explicated in the story's closing paragraphs. So I have them here. I'll read them to you. So this is all one long quote. Haven't you noticed, too, on the part of nearly everyone you know, a growing rebellion against the present and an increasing longing for the past? I have. Never before in all my long life have I heard so many people wish that they lived at the turn of the century or when life was simple or worth living. Or when you could bring children in, same, or when you could bring children into the world and count on the future, or simply in the good old days. People didn't talk that way when I was young. The present was a glorious time, but they talk that way now. For the first time in man's history, man is desperate to escape the present. Our newsstands are jammed with escape literature, um, the, the very name of which is significant. Entire magazines are devoted to fantastic stories of escape, to other times, past and future, to other worlds and planets. Escape to anywhere but here and now. Even our larger magazines, uh, book publishers, and Hollywood are beginning to meet the rising demand for this kind of escape. Yes, there is a craving in this world like a thirst, a terrible mass pressure that you can almost feel, of millions of minds struggling against the barriers of time. I am utterly convinced that this terrible mass pressure of millions of minds is already significantly but definitely affecting time itself. In the moments when this happens when the almost universal longing to escape is greatest, my incidents occur. Man is disturbing the clock of time, and I am afraid it will break. When it does, I leave to your imagination the last few hours of madness that will be left to us, all the countless moments that now make up our lives suddenly ripped apart and chaotically tangled in time. Well, I have lived most of my life. I can be robbed of only a few more years. But it seems too bad, this universal craving to escape what could be a rich, productive, happy world. We live on a planet well able to provide a decent life for every soul on it, which is all 99 of 100 human beings ask. Why in the world can't we have it? And that is it for Rudolph Fence, the traveling man. So what many have come to believe is this weird conspiracy thing over time is actually just an excerpt from this dude's story. It's very like War War of the Worlds. Worlds. Exactly. Yeah. Also, chaotically entangled in time. Get that tattooed on my forehead. (laughs) Dude, big fan of that. That passage was, like, very well... Like, I'm down to read the whole thing because I liked how it was written. I was like, damn. Yeah, it... it, um, It's giving me very, like... At the end of Midsummer Night's Dream, Puck has this whole monologue where ba- basically it boils down to him being like, that shit was crazy. Like, that feels like yeah. that to me. Where yeah, he was just much. like, he was just like, wow, that was bananas, huh? All right, see you guys later. <laughs> and catch you next time. Yeah. So that's it. So everybody, that's that's the case wow. of Rudolph Fence, the traveling man. It is, in fact, n- nothing true at all, but merely a story. Because um, when I, I first wonder- started reading it, I was like, 
holy shit. Because, like, all this shit was stacking up. And I was like, this yeah. shit's crazy. And then I was like, this can't be real. And then we hit the punchline. It was not real. It's interesting, though, because I'm wondering if Stan Lee, like, got that idea from Captain America. Because that's how Captain America, like, shows up. Is he, like, wakes up. Well, he was under the water or whatever the hell he was. But he's like a lost man in another time. It's interesting. Yeah, but maybe so. Yeah. So that's that's the the wild story of Rudolph Fence. I liked I liked researching it. I was like, this is cool, but it's you know Literally another, as you were reading it, I was like, I'm getting freaked out. <laughs> I know, it was it was freaky to read and I was like, this shit is like I I because I, I was reading it and I was like, how am I gonna try and explain this away? And right. then I reached I reached the point to be like, aha, because it is fake. Um, yeah, but it was it was a blast to read about. So thank you very much, Odd Fam, and um, that's so I, interesting. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. So when you're this is why you gotta audit your sources, gang. Do it big time, yeah. Because some of this shit that shows up across social media and whatnot, it's like, what the fuck? Yeah. But yeah, this was a blast, and I'm kind of curious to read the whole story of I'm scared. <laughs> Same. Mood. So, so also, yeah, I because I feel like I've seen on. On social media, they're like, oh, Betty White ad-libbed this scene in Golden Girls. And someone, like, I guess tweeted and was like, no, this scene is directly from the script. Mm. And everybody was just, like, retweeting me, like, oh, my God, Betty White. Ad-. Like, it's interesting that... And now, at this point, I'm like, I don't know which is true, and it doesn't matter. But it's just, That's like, exactly one of those right. things where we we are losing the capability to audit things, which is frightening. Yeah, it is frightening, because now we're just going to end up into this mass world of bullshit you know yeah, of madness and maybe of, that was his whole point i think indeed it was so chaotically entangled in time and that's it we're all chaotically entangled in time and uh either that or it's flat i'll take both why not yeah why did, not did you watch the good place part of it oh because i don't know if you got to jeremy Baramy. When they explain no. that that's what life is, and it's just the word Jeremy Baramy, and they're like, what? What the And every hell? time something insane happens, they're like, Jeremy Baramy. And they're like, what? <laughs> that's funny. No, I only got like a little... It feels like that. It does, yeah. I, I only got like a little bit of the first season of that show. But um, yeah, I don't know. This was, this was a blast to research, and if anybody's read the whole thing, let us know. Um, yeah. Honestly, you know. I might read the whole thing. That sounds really interesting. For sure. And, uh, you know, until next time, stay strange.